I'm Steve Lascalzo, and this is The Way. Hello there. Two episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi started streaming through Disney Plus on May 26th, shortly before midnight in the Eastern Time Zone. I've produced two podcast episodes for Part 1 already, a first impression podcast and then a recap and discussion episode as well. I've also released a first impression podcast for Part 2. I created that shortly after the one I did for Part 1, but I waited to release it until after the recap and discussion podcast for Part 1 had time for people to find it. Now it's time for the Part 2 recap and discussion of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Unlike The Mandalorian or The Book of Boba Fett, there are no chapter names for this limited six-episode series. OBK calls Episode 2, Part 2. Simplicity is appreciated. The podcast you are listening to now may spoil your enjoyment of the series if you haven't already seen Episodes 1 and 2. If that's the case, this is a warning. If you're caught up, let's continue. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. Part 2 is directed by the showrunner, Deborah Chow, just like Part 1. I think she'll be in that chair for all six. The writing credits are complicated. So the story is credited to Stuart Beattie and original writer of the series, Hussein Amini. Amini left the project while it was still in pre-production, and a new writer was brought in to fix the scripts to fit a new direction Chow wanted to take. That writer, Joby Harold, is credited with a teleplay for Part 2. Unlike Part 1, Harold is credited here all by himself. I take that to mean there are major differences for this second part from the original scripts submitted by Amini. I could be wrong, but that's my impression. The runtime shows up as 42 minutes in parentheses on the Disney Plus show page, but that's not what it takes if you're just interested in the action. There's no recap segment as there was for Part 1. But there is now a previously on montage after the Disney Plus snap, and before the Lucasfilm Limited, Star Wars, and Obi-Wan Kenobi title slate. The action starts two minutes after pressing play and continues for 32 minutes and 53 seconds when Vader's breath finally fades and the credits and John Williams theme begins. The thumbnail description available on the show's Disney Plus Episodes tab reads, On a dangerous, crime-ridden world, Obi-Wan becomes a target. The episode description on the show's page when you select that episode is much different in text, but similar in context. It reads, Obi-Wan's mission brings him to a crime-ridden world, home to all manner of scum and villainy. Going through the credits, it's probably not necessary to start with a star, but he deserves it, right? Hello there. Ewan McGregor is Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he is terrific. Kumail Nanjiani is credited next, and he plays Haja Estri. And I used to listen to his podcast on the Nerdist Network, and at that point I liked him. Then he got a little too political for my taste, and I didn't like him. But I still think he's funny, and I do think he's great in this role of a con man with a soft spot. Maurice Alvarez plays a role that she has on her IMDb page as Nisha, N-Y-C-H-E, Nish, Nish. She's the mother of what may be a Force-sensitive child credited as Corin. The boy, Indy Desroches, doesn't speak in the episode, but he still gets an official credit. 
And at least according to IMDb, this won't be the last episode we see Maurice Alvarez appear. This will probably be the last time we see Michael Peter Balzari, better known as Flea, since his character Vect Nokru apparently dies at the hand of the Inquisitors, although we only hear his screams and don't see it happen. And in Star Wars, even when you see it happen, it doesn't mean someone's gone, right? <clears throat> Kenobi. Kenobi! Moses Ingram plays the third sister, Reva Savander. She's still a little over the top with her acting, but I think that's the direction she was given. And I think there might be reasons in her character's backstory that might make sense of that. Vivian Lyra Blair plays Leia. Young, 10-year-old Leia. And this young actress, I think she's going to have a bright future. I haven't seen buzz over a young actress like this since Game of Thrones had Bella Ramsey playing Lyanna Mormont. I don't plan on knitting by the fire while men fight for me. I might be small, Lord Glover, and I might be a girl, but I am every bit as much a northerner as you. How can this buzz help a young actor? Ramsey's going to be part of the Last of Us series as Ellie, a major role opposite Pedro Pascal's Joel. She's had steady work since Game of Thrones too. I expect Miss Blair to have plenty of offers after this turn as Princess Organa. I'm just Leia. Rupert Friend appears as the Grand Inquisitor. I have to mention here that IMDb has him listed for all six episodes. I know, IMDb is not proof. I'm just passing along information anyone can find with a simple Google search. Sung Kang is the fifth brother. Raya Kilstedt is the fourth sister. She did not appear last episode, and to my knowledge, this is that character's first appearance anywhere. Then we have Anakin. Darth Vader. Man in Bacta. Sand Hater. Heavy Breather. Old Wrinkle Face. Hayden Christensen. His appearance at the end of the episode is short. But haunting. Tamawara Morrison appears, but not as Boba Fett or as Django in a flashback. He's a clone trooper fallen on hard times. He's a beggar. It was a very welcome surprise to see him turn up. Titha Grigg, the street level spice dealer, is Esther Rose McGregor. She is, in fact, the daughter of Obi-Wan. Well, not Obi-Wan, but the actor who plays him, Ewan. It was a nice treat to see her name pop up. And it was very cool how one of the lines that Obi-Wan says to her is that he's looking for his daughter. Anytime parents get the chance to work with their kids, I think that's pretty cool. She's not just there because she's related either. She doesn't stick out. She's good in the role. She blends in. Jacoby Swain plays Jaco, the boy that brings Kenobi to the con man. The Zabrak Spice Den Guard is played by stuntman Tom O'Connell. Shalene Yoon, also on the stunt staff, plays the human one. Vect Nokru's mercenaries are back, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. alumni Aviel A. Young and Amy Sturdivant. Also credited are some Spice Runners, and I'm not going to give their names out. Now, normally I skip over credits that don't have previous ties to Star Wars or other Marvel or Lucasfilm shows. 
But I am genuinely confused as to who these three people are. Because I went back through the whole episode to see who they are talking about. And I have no clue. I think maybe it's some of the people that were chasing Obi-Wan and Leia through the streets of Dayu. But I can't be sure. The theme for Obi-Wan Kenobi is by John Williams. And I want to pass along. It is finally available on Spotify. It wasn't on Friday morning. But by sometime Friday night or Saturday morning, it was available. Scoring for the show will be done by Natalie Holt. And after two episodes, I am comfortable saying she is doing a great job here, just like she did on Loki. Alright, next up will be the recap and discussion after a quick break. You can go about your business. Move along. Move along. Move along. After the Disney Plus snap, the previously on segment, and the Obi-Wan Kenobi title slate, we join the transport from Tatooine as it makes the planetary approach to Dayu. Remember, Obi-Wan Kenobi is on board. This is classic Star Wars, starting in space and then taking us into a planet. Dayu seems to be mostly green, and half the planet is bathed in starlight, while the other half, the night side, appears densely populated, at least from what we can see of the lights that are visible from space. Obi-Wan leaves the port after landing and is in the middle of a city. I think it was said this planet is modeled after Hong Kong. And my wife mentioned to me that it reminded her of the city from the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Madripoor. That city, too, probably took inspiration from South Asian cities. The first thing Obi-Wan does is check his scanner, and it's not working. Seems like a throwaway line, but remember, later there's going to be a city-wide bounty put out. So the deck officer telling him that all signals in or out are blocked is important. It makes the point that his scanner won't work, but other technology on the planet will. Obi-Wan has been out of the Jedi business for 10 years, and when he was in it, it was a lot easier to get around. He's kind of lost, and so once again he reaches out through the Force to his master. His plea for guidance gets answered, from a certain point of view, by an interruption. Spare any credits. Help a veteran get a warm meal. It's an old clone trooper. Temuera Morrison plays an aged-up trooper, and he's down on his luck, begging for credits by using his bucket helmet. His uniform is blue and white, so... He might be a member of the 501st, the very troopers that slaughtered younglings in the Jedi Temple with Anakin. Obi-Wan is clearly affected. He's probably wondering if he's recognized, and is also disturbed by the possibility that this is an answer to his plea for help from the Force. He donates some credits, and my thoughts were that the clone might indeed recognize him, but remember the order worked strongest immediately after it was given, so the impulse to kill Jedi might have faded, or maybe I'm wrong and he can't control himself, but there are no Jedi around Dayu, I guess, and maybe also surviving clones sought to have their chips removed after hearing about them through back channels, I don't know. This guy I want to know more about, but IMDB only has Temora Morrison around for one episode, so I'm not getting my hopes up. I think that my hopes that this trooper is going to seek some semblance of redemption by helping out Obi-Wan may not come to pass. Anyway, Obi-Wan continues on his way, and he's approached by a spice dealer. You want some spice, old man? 
I got a Kessel Pure Glitter Stem in Felution. It's not Elon Sleazebagano from Attack of the Clones. This is Tetha Grigg, and she's trying to sell spice. Two of the strains that she mentions have planetary connections, Kessel and Felucia. Kessel is famous, of course, thanks to the Kessel run by Han Solo and the Spice Mines reference from C-3PO. Felucia is seen in Revenge of the Sith and is also featured a few times in the Clone Wars animated series. Glitter Stim, though, I, well, you can't name all the strains after planets, can you? Oh, and Obi-Wan's line to her has a cool double meaning. I'm looking for my daughter. Grig is played by Ewan McGregor's daughter, Esther Rose. It's not nepotism here. First, they needed someone to play the part, and why not his daughter with a line like that, right? Second, she's good. Her response to him is a little heartbreaking, especially considering that in the real world, so many daughters go missing in human trafficking. If she's here, you're never going to see her again. Nobody leaves this place. I was someone's daughter once, too. Obi-Wan is not playing Liam Neeson's part here. He's not going taken, although that's pretty funny that Liam Neeson as Qui-Gon is his master, and here he is trying to track down somebody who's been trafficked. Now, as the father of two daughters, there's no greater nightmare for me than the thought of losing them, especially like this. It's just horrible, and like I said, that line really is rough. She slips him before he leaves a freebie. A uh, sample, if you will. Grig's lack of solutions, though, is overheard by a young grifter, Jaco. And Jaco is going to take him to a Jedi, he says, for the right price. Obi-Wan certainly doesn't let on that he is one, but the prospect is way too intriguing for him to pass up. Cut to the supposed Jedi leading two marks into his hideout. The hideout is rigged for him to wow them with force powers. He waves his hands. He closes gates. Snatches a communicator off a table with the force. I did know from promotional material that Haja was a con man. But he could still have been a Jedi and a con man. Or a former Jedi and a con man. Maybe he's just using his powers to eke out a survival. I wasn't fooled though for a second. Uh, I must say, though, the overacting kind of works for the character. The Marks are a mother and son, Nish or Nish, and Corin Horn, according to what I could find. This is the introduction into canon of a Legends character. The mention about Corellia is what tips it off. Corin is the subject of the Legends novel I, Jedi. No, I did not read it, and no, I am not recommending it. In the novel, Corrin Horn is a member of the Corellian Security Force and has latent Jedi powers. The events of that novel end up being impossible because Leia and Han do not have children named Anakin, Jason, and Jaina. I wish these were just uncredited roles, and I wish it had been a planet mentioned other than Corellia. I know they have this temptation. This, to me feels force, this legend's inclusion. Since there's a possibility that these two people return later in the series, I'm going to reserve my final judgment to see how this plays out. We will never forget you. You must. My safety depends upon it. Now go. Go. 
Obi-Wan appears from the shadows when they leave, which is a nice touch, considering Haja's spiel includes him talking about how his realm is the shadows, since the light is an unforgiving place for his kind. Well, Haja is right about that, since he is no Jedi. His kind are con men, and the light is unforgiving of that. Obi-Wan draws a blaster on him after hearing his prices and shows him he knows Haja's tricks. Haja wonders if he's a bounty hunter. And I don't remember Obi-Wan getting this rough with someone, even someone who conned a mother and child. After all, as Haja says, I got them safe, just a little poorer. You're not going to tell anyone, are you? That depends on what you tell me. One might argue in this climate that his services might actually be worth what he's charging. Except at this point, we don't know if he ends up getting paid on both ends. It's possible that he's taking money from his marks and then... The Empire is paying him for delivering those marks right to him. He agrees to help Obi-Wan and find the girl he's looking for. <laughs> and I suppose he tells him where to find her. I, I don't exactly know how he knows, but he seems to know where she's at. Obi-Wan heads off to find her and passes signs in light blue that by my translation spell S-W-M-I-L-K, so Star Wars Milk? Leia is apparently being held at The Den, which is probably a spice parlor with a spice lab in the back. Obi-Wan sneaks in and causes a distraction. If somehow Deborah Chow had Moff Gideon arrive for any reason, this would have been so breaking bad in space, it might have broken the internet. Too much? Maybe. But I think I would have loved to see Obi-Wan go through the front door instead, and then see in the corner booth Moff Gideon lounging there. Maybe even get Jonathan Banks to play one of his officers? <laughs> Am I spending too much time thinking about this? Well, listen, Chow did direct an episode of Better Call Saul, so you tell me. Anyway, Obi-Wan gets to the back rooms and runs into security for the lab. He plays Lost, then gets in a fight, knocks out the Zabrak, a species of alien he's had some luck against, huh? He subdues the human guard and finds out where Leia is held. Only when he enters the cell, he is surprised from behind by Vect and his crew. You're not a Jedi anymore, Kenobi. You're just a man. You're bleeding all over my floor. Well, everybody bleeds. That line reinforces that there are myths surrounding Jedi. Ones like Anakin hearing about them being supposedly invincible. That was a myth that he would have dispelled for him at the Skywalker dinner table by Qui-Gon Jinn in The Phantom Menace. And then he would disprove that with his own death. Vect tells Ben the Inquisitor figured him out and that she's on her way. The girl must be close, says Ben, but the goons don't care. Flea delivers a line out of Fast and Furious, the one about bleeding on his floor. Ben takes out the spice sample, smashes it on the floor, fills the room with... Maybe this was Glitter Stim? It reminded me of one of the opening scenes in The Phantom Menace when he and Qui-Gon were in the room and it filled with gas and he held his breath while he masks up, leaves Vect and his men in a drug-induced red haze. In Japanese, that's called Akakiri, I recently learned. Riva is on her way, but Obi-Wan continues his search for Leia and finds the right room this time. She's free of her restraints because she gets the drop on him at the door and tries to run. 
he backs up to the doorway and delivers a line that parallels Luke's to Leia on the Death Star. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. You're who? I'm here to rescue you. I've got your R2 unit. I'm here with Ben Kenobi. Ben Kenobi? Where is he? Come on. Who are you? Your father sent me. I'm here to help you. It's one of those tone poem things George Lucas has memed about, I guess, right? It would have been even cooler if Ben had taken her out through a garbage chute, but hey, they head out onto the street, they try to blend in while Reva reaches the den and finds the hallucinating crew, but no Jedi. Leia wants answers from Obi-Wan. She doesn't grasp the danger she's in. He tells her they have to get to a port across town, so she just assumes, hey, we can head straight there. She runs into a sort of space sweetums. <laughs> I'm referencing the large, hairy, big-mouthed Muppet. You expect me to believe that? Look, it isn't sweetums. Ooh. Kitty. Or Sully from Monsters, Inc. So, so fun. Or Ludo from Labyrinth. My point is, this is a big creature surprising a little girl, and for the moment, it gets her to comply with Obi-Wan's orders. You would kidnap an Imperial Senator's child. We've done worse. You have no right. The Grand Inquisitor seems ticked off, but Reva is getting results, and it slightly surprises me that he's not more appreciative of her work. I feel like they're all Sith wannabes, and Sith seem to not really care about the methods, but... Maybe there's pressure from the Emperor or even just Vader. It's the fifth brother ratting her out for trying to gain favor by capturing Kenobi. And how is it that the Grand Inquisitor doesn't already realize that? He dresses her down in front of her brother and sister, calling her the least of them, saying she came to them from the gutter. That seems to bother her. What does it mean? I think it means she turned on her friends willingly rather than forcefully turning through torture. I know, I don't know if it's true, but maybe there's some honor in coming to the dark side through pain rather than blatant ambition. But we can't even be sure that that's all there is to Reva. Maybe, just maybe, Obi-Wan ends up saving Reva, turning her from the dark to the light. Maybe in the absence of that kind of success with Anakin... It's what fuels Kenobi's hope for the next nine years or so. Maybe she gets redeemed and lives. Maybe she runs off to a quiet corner of the universe. She doesn't have to die, right? Or maybe Vader ends her, like he did with Trilla in the events of Jedi Fallen Order, the second sister. Whatever motivates her, the Grand Inquisitor likens it to a stench. Kind of a Agent Smith from the Matrix sentiment. Reva suggests it's his failure, and this insubordination seems to produce the conflict she was looking for. Had Reva become a Jedi, she'd almost certainly have been a headstrong and rebellious one. The Grand Inquisitor then pulls a Tarkin move on her, or in actuality, this play by him on Reva to take credit for her work predates Tarkin's power move on Orson Krennic. You'll tell the Emperor as much. I will tell him that his patience with your misadventures has been rewarded with a weapon that will bring a swift end to the rebellion. And that that was only an inkling of its destructive potential. I will tell him that I will be taking control over the weapon I first spoke of years ago, effective immediately. Secure the city. I will take Kenobi in myself. 
You are no longer required, sister. I brought Kenobi here. Stand down. You will be dealt with when we return. Reva's response is to put out a planet-wide bounty on Kenobi. She's going rogue here. Remember the note from the deck officer about block signals? Well, this one stays on planet. So it goes through, and soon bounty hunters are getting signaled across the city. Obi-Wan and Leia are still trying to blend in, so he buys some clothes. And as the father of two girls, I can identify with this shopping trip. Here, put this on. Can I try this one instead? Half the city is looking for you. Put this on. Yeah, little green. Cape. You don't need those. And the gloves. He gives her a story to tell. If anyone asks who they are, he says they're farmers from Tall, and it's his daughter. But I couldn't find a single reference to that planet. Clearly, it's one that Obi-Wan knows. But Leia's line back is just one more reason to love her. If anyone asks, we're farmers from Tall, and you're my daughter. Granddaughter, maybe. What? Nothing. She takes a moment to take in the city, and she is impressed. It's her first trip off world, probably. At least by herself, or without her parents. Ben ushers her away and tells her to not smell, look, or touch anything. She is not pleased with her chaperone. Don't smell anything. Don't look at anything. Don't touch anything. You sound like my parents. Not really a fun uh, field trip, I guess. A LOM series droid appears as they slink off, and not even the closed captioning reveals its number, so it might not be for LOM. But if it's not the bounty hunter from Empire Strikes Back, then it's a weird coincidence that two different LOM series droids overrode their protocol programming to become bounty hunters. You know, we don't see a lot of these guys around the galaxy. When we see a C series droid, we don't automatically know, hey, this is 3PO. And there are lots of different astromechs that are not named R2-D2. So this might just be a coincidence. Anyway, Ben and Leia make their way through the crowds, and I have two things to say about it. First, they are quickly becoming one of my favorite duos. Yes, the Mandalorian and Grogu are up there, absolutely. But second, though, just listen to this section of dialogue. Not just because it's important, but also... Leia is awesome, you guys. I read that Jedi can make things float. Make me float. What? I want to float. No. Because you can't. Because if I use the Force, then it'll draw attention to us. Come on. You haven't even told me your name. Ben. It's not a Jedi name. Well, that's my name. You'll have to trust me eventually. How can I trust you when I know you're hiding something? You think the less you say, the less you give away. But really, it's the opposite. How old are you? Ten. You don't sound like you're ten. Thank you. Isn't that whole thing awesome? Make me float? Now the only little nitpick is, he was there for her birth. He knows how old she is. But let's just talk that up to a rhetorical question and being lost in the moment. We hear the name he gives her, not General Kenobi or Obi-Wan, but Ben. Her rescuer becomes her son's name. But more than that, this is enough of a tightrope walk by the writers to suggest why she doesn't refer to him that way in her holler recording to R2. 
That's not even considering she was hiding her connection to Obi-Wan. Moving on, Jayco visits Haja to tell him they missed out on a big bounty, and they set off to find them. The Grand Inquisitor orders the Fifth Brother to shut down the porch, bring in a garrison, and kill Kenobi. Oh, is that all? This is no ordinary Jedi. Kenobi is the last ember of a dying age. Extinguish him. Consider it done. Gotta appreciate the motivation and confidence. The fourth sister brings a bounty hunter to the Grand Inquisitor, shows him the reward being offered on his Apple Watch. He's not happy with Reva. She is perched on a rooftop waiting for something to happen. It comes soon as Ben and Leia wait in an alley and a bounty hunter attacks. Ben knocks him out. Leia brings out her broken droid. I like to think her line about her droid has dual meaning for herself as well as the droid. She'll be alright though. She's strong. Ben is short-tempered, but can you blame him? He's being hunted. It's a fact that Leia picks up on when she catches him trying to deactivate the bounty hunter's hollow signal. This breaks the fragile trust she had, and she runs. But once again, the show cannot make a believable foot chase. Okay, maybe it's because Obi-Wan doesn't want to cause more of a distraction, but... He's doing that by chasing her at all, so grabbing her right away would have been the smarter choice. But if he couldn't, well then shooting a guy in the back, that causes much more of a scene. He should have just grabbed her right away. He could have. Go back and look at the scene. It's not just that. After he knocks down someone chasing her, he is right next to her, but he lets her run again. She then outpaces him on the rooftop somehow after she climbs a ladder, and her legs are much, much shorter than his. This is just not believable in any way. As if this chase wasn't enough, Reva sees the blaster fire of bounty hunters, and she's on the move, and she's way too close, I mean, way too close, to make make me believe that her using those force jumps and speeding across the top of the roofs, she's just not that far away. We get some of the scenes from the trailer, and for some reason we see Haja on the rooftops too. They included a clip of him there. But why? If we wanted to see him seeing Obi-Wan save her, he should have been on the ground watching Leia fall and then slow down. That's the other problem. So Ben's blasting it out with two different bounty hunters, hits one of them, then turns to Leia, who decides to jump a huge gap. But why? She, There's no way she was going to make that. Predictably, she falls way short. It's very tropish. She grabs onto a convenient wire. Again, cliche, tropish. Obi-Wan then gets to the gap very quickly, looks over the edge, and ends up using the Force through great strain to cause her to feather fall. Again, Not something Haja could have seen where he was, so why did they include the shot of him on the roof? More than that, though, how is it that Obi-Wan gets to ground level so fast? This whole thing is just not well-conceived. It's very weak, but thankfully, it's not the end of the show, so we can move past it. Obi-Wan Kenobi officially has a foot chase problem. You, you really are a Jedi. 
Ben and Leia make their way toward the spaceport, but it's closed for business and it's crawling with stormtroopers. Haja somehow comes upon them, and he immediately suggests an alternative. An automated cargo transport to Mapuzo. He gives Obi-Wan what looks like a Sabacc card. This might be a casino-type planet, which would go with Leia's approval of that casino ship leaving Alderaan from Part 1. So here is my thought. What if this particular card belongs to a casino run by Crimson Dawn? It's red and black. I think it's clearly in the shape of a Sabat card. I would love to take credit if I'm the only one that noticed that. Anyway, Obi-Wan wonders aloud to Haja about his motivations and if he can be trusted and, you know, is this a trap? Haja states the obvious. What choice do you have? Now, it does seem at this point that he helped the mother and son get away, just like he said. So maybe this will work. Maybe he's on the level here. You're not alone, Obi-Wan. The Grand Inquisitor is in Terror-Ogating Vect. That's my mashup of Terror and Interrogating. I don't think it's going to catch on. Anyway, Vect has no idea where they are, and the Grand Inquisitor could know that if he read his mind with the Force. Honestly, it kind of seems like he and Reva switched personalities for this scene. Unless, maybe the Grand Inquisitor is judging thugs as worthless. Maybe because this guy is a criminal, and then he treats the innocents with a little more respect. He did seem to be having this glowing appreciation for the saloon owner in part one, right? So maybe he figures the hardworking people, the innocents are worth more than these thugs. Anyway, that's how I'm choosing to interpret it. Because that personality swap, I mean, Reva does the exact opposite with Haja. Haja bravely and stupidly runs interference for Obi-Wan. Why? If he had just hid or played dumb, she wouldn't have had the opportunity to use the Force on his mind and find Obi-Wan's exact location. You're no Jedi. She can tell easily that he's not a Jedi, and there's another original trilogy line being reused that was from Bib Fortuna about Luke. Master he's no Jedi. Leia and Ben reach the cargo hangar, and her feistiness finally reminds Obi-Wan of her mother. Her real mother, Padme. He doesn't come out and tell her that her mom is Padme, but certainly this wouldn't be the time to make that kind of a reveal anyway. The pause, though, that gives enough time for Reva to catch up, and before they can make it to the ship, she enters the hangar. Obi-Wan sends Leia off to the ship and tells her to get things ready. He's stuck, avoiding Reva, but she can sense him. Lord Vader will be pleased. You didn't know. He's alive, Obi-Wan. Anakin Skywalker is alive. Obi-Wan hears for the first time that his friend, his brother in arms, is alive. This shocks him and causes him to freeze in fear. He's not afraid of Vader, but now all those feelings he was trying to work past because he believed that his friend had died are brought to the surface. I suppose that Obi-Wan didn't hear any stories about the Emperor's Enforcer in the Outer Rim. 
It's not like he had drinking buddies or a social life, right? He heard Anakin's Sith name given by the Emperor in a hollow recording from the Jedi Temple in Revenge of the Sith. He knows it's true. He feels it. Her sister! I can stand the reek of your ambition no longer. I found him. We have him. And I cannot risk you losing him again. The Grand Inquisitor comes upon Riva in her moment of triumph. He intends to strip her of this victory. Riva pretends to allow it, but stabs him in the chest with her saber. She may not be a Sith, but this is a very Sith move. The script is full of word burns. First Olars, then Leia, now Riva. Really think I'd let you take all the credit? Who's in the gutter now? Obi-Wan slips through her fingers once again. But again, Star Wars doesn't seem to do chases very well. Uh, unless they're involving pods and racing or trench runs. They do those pretty good. It's a slow-moving cargo transport. She's within striking distance of it. Maybe she's not as powerful in the Force as Rey. Maybe she can't prevent the ship from taking off. But there are other ships nearby. And surely she could try chasing the slow-moving semi with a pickup truck, right? She vows to destroy Obi-Wan, but I feel like Reva is overcompensating here. And the overacting still occasionally feels mustache twirly to me. Safely inside the transport, though, Obi-Wan is still stunned about Anakin. His daughter's in the transport with him, right? Ewan McGregor's stunned look gives way to the final dialogue in the episode, but not certainly the final sounds. Anakin. What do you think? I loved both episodes. I didn't like that they're trying to fool us with the Grand Inquisitor. I mean, Rupert Friend is listed for all the episodes, and he dies in Rebels, so this just seems like a cheap trick. Maybe for people who don't know Star Wars Rebels, but it doesn't work on me, and it just makes me angry. But maybe there's a reason... Maybe there's a plan, so I'm not going to get too upset. I've had a little time to think about it. But what I loved most about the episode is clearly Leia. I have always loved Luke the most, followed very closely by the biggest hero in Star Wars, R2-D2. Now, Leia wasn't a distant third, but she wasn't in my top two. And I'm going to say that my love for this 10-year-old actress stems from my own love for my eight and four-year-old. Full disclosure, I did not get my way naming either of my daughters Leia, but that's not something I'm upset about. I just think Leia is a terrific character. She always has been. My wife is my Leia, even though she calls me her Hans and not Han, <laughs> to the point that she had our Disney magic bands labeled his Leia and her Hans, and I had to point that out to her, but that's beside the point. Leia and Ben in this show are probably not going to be together for the rest of the show. I think she's going to get safely back with the Organa family, maybe even as soon as the next episode. 
But in order for Obi-Wan to avoid bringing the heat back to Tatooine, he's going to have to hop around, evade Reva and Vader, and I think it's going to culminate with a lightsaber duel. And then perhaps Vader believes Obi-Wan dies in a crash or an explosion or some other kind of disappearance. To me, that's the only way Vader gives up the search. That's the only way Obi-Wan can return to Tatooine safely. I can only hope that the writers and Deborah Chow give me something better than the thing I have in my mind, because I don't have the best track record with predictions. See my coverage of the first four episodes of the Book of Boba Fett for that evidence. Yeah? Good. Anyway, that's all from part two. Next week, the show adopts the Wednesday 3 a.m. Eastern release schedule, if I read the right reports. I'm going to take a wild guess here and say the title of the episode is, uh, Part 3. My plan is to continue to do First Thought podcasts the day of, especially since this time I beat YouTubers and Twitter posters to the punch with some of my observations, at least for Part 1, which I was able to release, and for Part 2, which I had early in the morning, but didn't release until later. And I was pretty proud of myself. Until I finally got time to listen back to my podcast and found out that something caused the sound effects track to shift a few seconds. And it must have happened while I was exporting the files or an errant delete key. I I don't know. The sound clips didn't sync up right. I fixed it and I'm still here plugging away. You've made mistakes. We all did. It's the past. Move on. Be done with it. You can always send us feedback or comments, and if you check out our links via Linktree, you'll find all the ways to interact with This Is The Way podcast. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash This Is The Way pod. At This Is The Way pod is our Insta and Twitter handle, and the email address is This Is The Way podcast at gmail.com. But please, don't sign us up for spam. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lascalzo, and this is The Way. May the Force be with you always.